We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. What a text we have today. Hebrews chapter 4. And we've been for three weeks looking at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read those today, but I promise you we're moving on. I'm going to read 10 verses because I think you'll see when I read this text. It's a very involved text. So if you, the person beside you is dozing off, give them an elbow right now and say, you need, to, you need to wake up. You'll see what I mean when I read it. Hebrews 4, 1 to 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, as he writes to these Hebrew Christians who are just on the verge of being pulled back into Judaism by persecutors and those who would somehow seek for life under the old covenant rather than in Christ. That's the us. Good news came to us just as to them, the them, that's the children of Israel at Kadesh about to go into the promised land and they don't believe the word, the good news from the Lord that they can go in and take the land. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's Joshua and Caleb. They listened. And this is new territory. For we who have believed... Enter that rest. As he has said, quote, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's a mouthful, that verse. Because three different rests are talked about in one verse. And you have to remember that. Four. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. This way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Okay, so that's the Genesis Sabbath. Verse 5, and again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. That's the children of Israel and the promised land rest. And again, in this passage, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today. Saying through David, now we're talking about Psalm 95. So long afterward, in the words already quoted, because David quotes the Joshua incident. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And you feel like, wow. Verse 8, see, you, you now, you know, you need to be praying for me more than you do. For if Joshua had given them rest, his point here is there's still a rest to be entered into. And he wants to prove it. And so what he says in verse 8 is, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That much isn't complicated. So then there remains There remains. There's still something to enter into now. Not Genesis, not Joshua and Caleb, not Psalm 95, David. There's still a rest to be entered into. Four of them are talked about in this passage. For whoever has entered God's rest 
has also rested from his works as God did from his. I was 12 years old. My next elder brother, Ed, was 14. And I can still vividly remember the Sunday afternoon. We lived in Saskatoon. One of those great prairie summer Sundays. The weather was warm. The sky was blue. We came home from church. Dad had barbecued hamburgers on what was then called a hibachi. Anybody remember hibachis? In the backyard, everyone was done eating. Mom had settled into her traditional Sunday afternoon nap. And all was right with the world. The events that ensued are a bit of a blur. My best friend, Danny, who lived up the street, had come through the back gate. We used to have alleys. Remember alleys? They were a wonderful idea. You could burn garbage in a big burning barrel. It was a, it was, it was a wonderful life. Came through the back gate, into the backyard, off the lane, and in his hands, he carried a football. And one of those reckless moments of my misspent youth, Danny threw the ball to Ed, who in one of those moments when carnal excitement blocks out clear thinking, he threw it to me. That's right. What started out as a seemingly innocent Sunday afternoon ended as all sin snowballs with these three Christian boys eventually playing catch with a football on the Sabbath. As it turned out, my mother hadn't yet hit the sheets. She and my dad stormed out the back door to find what I can only assume appeared to them to be the children of Israel dancing around a golden calf at the foot of the mountain. Then came the question, how could they have raised four Christian boys who didn't understand what it meant to, quotes, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? And we repented in sackcloth and ashes. That's picture number one. Of course, this isn't the first time I had been reminded of the fourth commandment. I'd grown up in church, Pentecostal church, grateful for the heritage. All my life, I've been reminded of that fourth commandment. I've heard pastors over and over summoning those who tended to drift away from church once the weather warmed to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. So this wasn't a day for the beach or the pool or the cottage. Well, actually, no one had pools back then. It was a day for church. That's picture number two. More recently, the Sabbath has been making a comeback. People are urged, books are all over the place now. People are urged to hold burnout and stress at bay 
God didn't create us as beings who can burn the candle at both ends for sustained lengths of time. And he gave us a Sabbath rest. And this has been now defined as a, as a reminder that we need a day of nourishment, a day of regrouping. We need a weekly Sabbath to center our hearts and to wean us away from the callous noise of the rat race. And so the command is now remember your personal Sabbath to avoid burnout. So there are three pictures. And at this point, I want to offer two convictions. They're my convictions. First... In each of these three pictures, however misguided, there is, I think, a needed emphasis. My parents may not have been theologically careful enough with their wayward, football-tossing sinners. But... As with a lot of the rules that I grew up with, I think it is true that we have lost much by making Sunday just like any other day of the week with one quick church service at the beginning of it, and then we're done. That's 99% of the church in Canada, by the way. Secularism can't be counterbalanced with such lightweight discipline. And future generations will bear the scar of our selfishly indulged gospel freedom. The same could be said for pastors who were desperately trying to fill empty seats on Sunday night by reminding the people to remember the Sabbath day. Even if their old and new covenants were somewhat blurred, I think it's unarguably true not many Christians need less time in accountable, committed fellowship with the body of Christ on earth. Most of us need much more time with the assembled church. So the desire behind the pastor's plea, I think, was sound, even if the theology wasn't quite there. And finally... With that third picture, you'll get no argument from me about the need for a regularly kept day, a so-called personal Sabbath, a time set apart for rejuvenation, relaxation, meditation, refreshment. Life can't be sustained constantly wound up tight. God designed us for varied rhythms. So, my first conviction would be there's much to be considered in each of those three Sabbath situations. Some of them sound remote these days to our ears. Fair enough. But there are long-forgotten elements of necessary reminder, I think, in each of them. On to conviction number two. I said I had two convictions. Whatever we may think about each of those three Sabbath situations... Not one of them has anything to do with the most extensive, detailed Sabbath account in the New Testament. 
And that's the focus of the teaching time today, at least the time I haven't already used up. This is quite a text, and I need to know you're with me. You all with me? All right. Point number one. There are three pictures of rest in this text, and each one of them pictures a deeper reality fulfilled in Christ. There is a lot going on in these verses. In, in chronological order, not necessarily textual order, but in time, the sequence, there are three rests described. First, let me just show them to you. There is the seventh day rest. God created six days, rested on the seventh. Now that rest is described in verse 4 and verse 10, and I think I put them on, yeah, on the same slide so you can see it. All I want at this point, don't try and absorb more than you need to. All I want to show you here is there are three rests described. They're different rests in this text. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So we know what that's talking about. That much we're sure of. Then in 4.10 he says, For whoever has entered God's rest, forget that part just for now, has also rested from his works as God did from his. So that clearly is talking about that. Okay? God resting from his work after six days of creation. That's the first rest in chronological order. Second, there's the rest of the promised land. That's the rest missed by the rebellious generation in the wilderness at Kadesh. And, and the references to that rest, they're scattered throughout the entire passage. You can see them, and I think I put them on one slide as well, in verse 2, verse 6, and verse 8. Remember, this is now in the wilderness, children of Israel about to enter the promised land, and they don't obey the Lord. They don't go in. Good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the ten spies who said, we can't do this. There's giants in the land. It's fortified. They parted company with faithful Joshua and Caleb. That's what that's talking about. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and, here it is, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Who's that talking about? It's talking about the children of Israel right on the border of the promised land. Here's a clear reference, verse 8. If Joshua, okay, now we know what we're talking about, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So that's two rests. First, the close of creation. Second, on the border of the promised land. I said there were three. There is a promised rest still in the future. And the creation account, Sabbath, and the promised land rest, the two we just looked at, only, only picture it in prophetic form. So our entire text is built around the idea that there is a very important gospel rest. It is still in front of us. A rest yet to be entered into. This is repeated 
too often to miss, but you see it most clearly, for example, in 4.1. Therefore, while the promise, see, promise of rest, entering his rest, look what he says here, still stands. So, so this is a promise not yet fulfilled. The promise still stands, and then he writes to those Christians and us, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Don't miss it, he's saying. So this rest is still to come in its fulfillment. Just to be clear. God's rest on the seventh day of creation is a completed rest. It's done. And by the time David quoted those words in Psalm 95, Israel had already been in the promised land for centuries. And yet, according to our writer, there is a promise still standing. And so here's the next reference to this remaining rest. You'll see it in 4.3. We, this is not creation, and this is not the children of Israel. This is not Genesis. This is not Psalm 95. This is the Hebrew Christians to whom this was written and us. We who have believed. Believed what? About believing in Christ is what it's taught. Believing the gospel. Enter that rest. Not everyone did. As he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So here, the comparison... See how that verse ends? Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What you have here is a comparison between God's completed Sabbath rest at creation. The rest of the promised land missed by that rebellious generation. And our writer says there's still a third remaining rest. He makes it most clear... In verse 8. I want to show you why this matters in just a minute. I just want to get the facts straight first. Where he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, if this was the only rest talked about, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, if this rest idea, if it's completed in the idea of The children of Israel going into the promised land, the land of rest, rest from their enemies. If that's all that was predicted and talked about, he says God would not have spoken of another day later on. Everybody got that much with me? If Joshua finished it, there wouldn't still be a promise standing. But there is still a promise standing, so there's another rest being described here. That's point number one. Three rests. Two are past. One is a live option. The first two rests. The seventh day at creation. The entry point into Canaan. Those are prophetic pictures. And they're designed to point to a greater reality beyond themselves. Okay, point number two. God's seventh day rest 
after creation holds up, points to God's completed creation work as a prophetic picture pointing to the completion of his redemptive work in Christ. I'm not asking you to take my word for that. You'll see that in Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3. If you remember this, we studied these verses. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So this is all prep work right here. But in, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So these are all getting ready for this. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, this is Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. No priest in the Old Testament ever sat down. Standing all the time. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Pastor Don, like, are you sure? So you're talking about the Sabbath rest at creation? And you're talking about the rest. It's actually called the rest, the promise of rest in the promised land. And you're telling us to believe that the rest of the seventh day in creation, the rest of the promised land for God's chosen old covenant people, you're saying those are just prophetic pictures pointing to a rest that comes in the completed redemptive work of Christ. Is that what you're asking us to believe? And it is. But I'm not asking you to believe it just because I say so. Look at this text which says it as clearly as can be. Paul writes to the church now, Colossae, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. So these are the old covenant dietary regulations, what's clean, what's unclean. With regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These... See this? Say that with me. Shadow. These are a shadow of things to come. What? What to come? The substance belongs to Christ. Everybody see it? The substance belongs to Christ. These are Paul's concerned words to followers of Christ who are trying to find redemption and life in the temporary shadows of the old covenant rather than the solid, permanent reality of the Christ. The Sabbath is called the shadow. Christ is the reality casting the shadow. In other words, the difference between Christ and the Sabbath is the difference between the skyscraper and the shadow of the skyscraper. And it's a big difference. 
This isn't just theological mumbo-jumbo. You can have a great office in a skyscraper. You can have a lovely condo in a skyscraper. You can, you can stay warm in winter in a skyscraper. But you can't find any of that in the shadow of a skyscraper. There's nothing there. The whole coming and work of Christ is to call people away from the shadow into the reality. Remember, God had a plan when he rested from his finished creation work. It wasn't that he was just bushed from all that creating. God never sat down under a tree and went, oh man, I'm telling you, if I have to make one more tree, I'm going to go out of my mind. I can't cope with this. No. His completion of creation, leading to rest, was intentionally pointing to another rest. One, the writer of our text in Hebrew says, remains open in verse 9. He says, there has come about another There has come about another great completed work. The rest at the close of the completion of creation points to the rest at the completion at the work of redemption. There is a rest firmly standing. There is a rest from human works of merit for divine favor. There is rest from the dead pursuit of relationship with God in a maze of man-made contradicting religions. There is actual rest from the real pain of sin and guilt that can never be erased just by distraction and pleasure on earth. Enter into that rest, our writer says. That's what that seventh day was all about. That's what that promised land was all about. They're pictures. Remember it today. There is Christ-centered gospel meaning behind that seventh-day rest in creation. The completion of creation was orchestrated to point to the completion of redemption. That's the reason for that Sabbath pattern. It was never meant as a standalone event any more than the entire Old Covenant was meant as a standalone covenant. The Sabbath, in that sense, is done the same way animal sacrifices are done. It's all fulfilled in Christ. Those are a shadow, Paul says. Three. The promised land rest resisted at Kadesh... is a prophetic picture that while redemptive rest in Christ is completed and free, it is not automatic. We need that example at Kadesh. Look at Hebrews 4, 6 to 10. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. It's talking about rest. 
and those who formerly received good news failed to enter. That's Kadesh, because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, that's long after the children of Israel are already in the promised land. In the words already quoted, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Don't, don't, don't re respond to the good news. He says good news, good news came to us just as it came to them. He says don't respond the way they did. Don't miss it. There's a promise still standing. There's a rest to be entered into. It's the completed work of redemption. But don't hear the news the way they heard the news because they missed it. If we were to cheat a bit and look ahead, we would realize that we only get the first fruits of our promised redemptive rest in the completed work of Christ. We only get the first fruits of it in this age. You'd have to zip all the way forward to Hebrews 11. So we're cheating a bit. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Look at this. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. If you want another reference, look at this one. Hebrews 11 13 to 16. You know this chapter where he marshals all these great people of faith under the old covenant. You see what he says? These all died in faith not having received the things promised. But having, having, having seen them and greeted them from afar. Having acknowledged that there were strangers and exiles on the earth. These are people who, some of them made it to the promised land. But realized that that wasn't, the promised land rest wasn't the end of the road rest. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Look at, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. A heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. These all died in faith not having received the promise. So the rest we enter into through faith in Christ is completed. Nothing else to be done. But it's not finalized. 
And the main point of today's text, with his repeated warnings about, about those rest-resisting people at Kadesh, is that we must never confuse, we must never confuse free rest with automatic rest or easy rest. You can see it when you go to 4, 1, 6, and 7. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today. Today, if you hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice. Today, if you hear the word. Today, if you sense the promise. Today, if God speaks to your heart. It is confusing. Just think for a minute about that generation. Just think about that generation on the edge of the promised land. Led mostly by Moses. Then right at the end by Joshua when they actually go in. Think about those people. Think about them because 600,000 of them died in the wilderness under the wrath of God. Not being allowed to enter because of their unbelief. Take the population of Newmarket, multiply it by what? Seven? Dead. Don't rush past that. And it wasn't Satan, God's wrath. They had been supernaturally delivered from Egypt, all of them. They could never have delivered themselves. Not one of them. What grace was shown. Is this sounding familiar? They could never have gotten out by themselves. God delivered them. What grace. But there's something else that's even more striking. They didn't just meander out of Egypt. Long before, God had given a promise to Abraham about where they were going after they got out of Egypt. He had a land that he promised them. They had all left Egypt with the goal of entering the promised land. They all left Egypt thinking about the covenant with Abraham. That's where they were heading all along. That's why God brought them out of Egypt. The promised land was the goal. It was the target. They get right up to the edge of the promised land, the goal, the whole point of their journey, and they say, no. What's going on here? They say no. Right at the point of entering the very land they left Egypt to reach. So what's the take home there? Well, plans and goals and aspirations 
aren't self-sustaining. What they intended at the beginning, they rejected at the finish. Starting is not the same as completing. That's the whole point of, of the repeated emphasis of our text between the decisions of yesterday and the continued faith of today. Look at verses 6 and 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long ago, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, what an urgent word. It, it, just, it just calls us to, to focus. How, how do you picture your conversion? You can dream about your conversion in the distant past, 1962, when you gave your heart to Jesus. You can long for the actual glory of the new creation in the future. But church, this is where we live right now. I don't care when you were saved. And there is a new day coming. But we don't live in either of those places. We're here. We're now. It's today. Today, if you hear his voice. There's opposition today. There are university professors who teach you that you're an idiot today. There are workplaces that are hostile to Christian people today. There are laws that get passed, political systems that are orchestrated against the Christian church today. There's all sorts of temptation, material temptation. You can make a fortune and live like a king today. What are you going to do right now? Today, if you hear his voice... Knuckle down. This is what you've got. Don't dream about what you're going to do for Jesus one day. This is what you've got. There is opposition to the church. Not so much in our part of the globe. Not yet. There will be. But there is certainly cultural ridicule. There's certainly pressure to conform. There are certainly distractions, idols aplenty. And this is especially seductive in our part of the world. So this, this convoluted text, I admit it. But I, somehow you take a text like that and you say, Pastor Don, why, like, why are you doing this on Sunday morning? And here's, here's the way I approach it, just so you know. The silly notion that every time we crack open our Bibles, we're supposed to get little soothing nuggets of gold dust falling down from heaven, giving our hearts joy. Anathema. The idea is you wrestle, think, interpret, learn. Somehow the Holy Spirit, that's my belief, the Holy Spirit put this text in this book for this church to know. Am I right? Today. Remember why you started out in Christ. Remember why he got you out of Egypt. 
Remember the goal. Drive your heart relentlessly into deeper and deeper trust in Christ. Soon that rest will be fulfilled in all of its splendor. In the meantime, refuse to die in the wilderness. There's no life to be had wandering around there. Never, never, never harden your heart to the today call of Jesus Christ. Never, never, never harden your heart. I don't care if you're 80 years old. There's still a today call in Christ. I don't care if you're 12. There's a today call in Christ. Everyone said? Let's pray.